This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to be talking with a very interesting market strategist about his views of what is happening on the street across uh, the different markets, and he's been writing a lot of interesting commentary on the Fed. Um, Professor, we're going to get your comments to kick us off. Uh, you talked last week of getting a little cautious, but the markets have been pretty good, good. this week. Uh, how are you yeah. reacting to what's uh, been well, happening? They're they're good. First of all, I think you had the the normal uh, the bank situation is is calming down. Uh, the inflation news was was really pretty good today. You know, PCE core came in, uh, uh, you know, a bit under expectations. I particularly like uh, the University of Michigan final number uh, for one year inflation going down to 3.6. That's the lowest in two years. And it's actually plummeted almost uh, three quarters of one percent in three months. That's quite a come down in terms of, uh, of of that number. I think that encouraged the Fed a couple of good earnings reports. Um, the data is coming in fairly strong. Uh, I just saw JP Morgan raise its first quarter GDP forecast uh, to 3.2%, start tomorrow, the second quarter, 1%. Well, if, if there's 3.2 this this year, uh, excuse me, this quarter, and the second quarter is one, then the Fed estimate of a 0.4% for the whole year is totally ridiculous, unless they're going to engineer a severe recession in the last two quarters of the year. I mean, it's just a matter of math. Um, you know, I mean, did they know what they were doing when they put down 0.4, knowing the first quarter was going to be between two and a half and three, and now people are thinking three and above. Uh, again, things can certainly, uh, uh, certainly turn around. Well, one of the problems uh, uh, one has is that we're not going to get the data of the fallout of SVB and the banking situation for a number of weeks. Uh, you know, the data has always lagged anywhere from, you know, four months to six months to eight months, uh, four months to, uh, excuse me, four weeks to six weeks to eight weeks. Um, uh, I mean, it's true that the jobless claims come in on a weekly are an early data. They've been remaining pretty strong. Um, I've been getting some emails from others that say that uh, those jobless claims don't mean as much in the service sector as they do in the manufacturing sector. Uh, So it's hard to actually say how how timely they are as compared to past uh, data, particularly with the response rates. But nonetheless, the data we have is strong. Next week, of course, we're getting the all-important employment report again for March. Now, again, we're not going to see SVB fallout. Um, it's taken the week kind of this happened. So, you know, there's no, uh, you know, no no one's really could, would be cutting back then. Early estimates are for 200,000 again. Now, uh, again, uh, as I mentioned, uh, if, if the Fed's estimate of 0.4% is to come true, it is negative GDP over the second, third, and fourth quarter, and it most likely negative payroll growth, negative over the next nine months. I, I wonder if you put that to the Fed today, whether they agree with it, but that was what they put down uh, in black and in black and white earlier. Uh, so I think the fact that the inflation news is coming in okay, the real data is not crumbling. The banking system seems normalized. No more runs. Uh, I think this is the reason. Uh, you know, you 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 got the VIX below twenty. You know, it was up in the upper twenties earlier. Um, 
Uh, now, again, uh, the lending, the tightening of the lending standards, in my opinion, is a big negative going forward. Uh, commercial real estate, et cetera, and so on, which uh, puts its tentacles on a lot of other things. So I think there's going to be slowness uh, in the second half of the year. But, per, you know, certainly uh, even even with that prediction, you would not see um, uh, a big a, a big come down. Um, um, uh, in any of the data that we're actually getting yes, yet. Um, David, can I ask you to jump in where we talk with David Zeros, who's chief strategist at Jeffries. Any comments or reaction to the professor's first comments here? Sure. I think the, the uh, one piece of data on the high-frequency side that has been on our radar is the uh, H41 report from the Fed in the wake of the SVB um, whatever you want to call it, debacle, uh, regulatory right. failure, uh, moronic decisions done by investment committees at banks on mortgage bonds. But however you look at it, the bottom line is we got another one last night, uh, <clears throat> Thursday evenings are when they come out. And actually the discount window borrowing was down $22 billion. The new facility, the BTFP, that takes bonds in at par from the banks, which uh, many of them have used to shore up their balance sheets, uh, actually only absorbed about half of that. There was about $10 billion in usage. So total bank borrowing actually fell $11 billion. And uh, the foreign repo, which was on everybody's radar after CS and Deutsche Bank, fell back down about $5 billion. And actually the balance sheet contracted last week by a total, let me just get the number exactly right, by about $30 billion. So we yeah. had this huge three to $400 billion expansion in the Fed's balance sheet. They sort of went to take on all of the, the risks around SVB and SBNY. And uh, that seems to have been a, a kind of, you know, a one and done or two and done story. And the market's going to look back, I think, on this and go, well, you know, the Fed, instead of doing 50, only doing 25, maybe, you know, that puts the 25 back on the table uh, for the next meeting and certainly keeps the Fed thinking about the inflation, uh, the inflation risks uh, that they were worried about prior to this SVB story. So uh, that's that's how I'm I, I'm kind of looking at the high frequency through that a little more than one or two pieces of uh, labor market. Uh, we should data. we should also mention, and I'm glad you mentioned this, uh, David, money supply was down again, the M2 money supply, and that comes out with a six-week leg, and that, as you know, has been going down now for uh, a year, down 3%. That's not much given the fact in the previous, you know, two years it was up 40%, but nonetheless, the, the sharpest decline we've seen actually since the 1930s. We also had another, the seventh consecutive drop in the Case-Shiller Index. Um, Jeremy, I don't know if we redid our core. I know that that's pretty online to see whether yeah. we still have a three-month annualized a negative core rate using current uh, housing statistics rather than the, the flawed, lagged Fed BLS statistics uh, that they uh, that they use. Um it, do, uh, it does look like it's still annualizing at the negative rates for the last, uh, if you use the three yeah, months. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if you if you actually put that in, I didn't see the the last month on the apartment list and Zillow, uh, whether it was uh, it was down or not. But we had another decline and a little bit of rise in the FHA. So the housing market is 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 still cooling down, and you know, one one thinks about bank lending. Uh, how much more? But I think the impact is going to be more on the commercial side. I mean, you know, REITs and commercial REITs just got slaughtered, you know, after, and they haven't, they've come back a little bit. I mean, there's a relief rally. I mean, we haven't seen a, a domino effect on the banks. Uh, but, you know, I, I hear what David is saying. I mean, I, I don't think there's a bank run. I didn't think there was going to be a bank run. I just think it's the chilling effect on loan officers of the type of of uh, loans that they're going to make over the next six to nine months. Forget about, you know, the, the balance sheet and whether there's any runs or not. I think it's a, you know, I, I, I think that, I think that that is uh, the question when commercial real estate already in the office sector being really challenged, um, you know, one wonders about uh, that and, and mortgage rates are, are still going to be high. I mean, I, we're not, Quite at seven percent, we're down in the six range again. But certainly, we're we're nowhere near 
you know, the rates that it, it uh, used to be during the, the housing boom. So I, I still expect this. I don't expect a banking pan. I do. I'm, I'm not surprised to see those bank borrowings go down. And I think that that they've 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 done well on that. But um, the, the chilling effect of lending, the chilling effect of the highest real rates in 40 to 45 years, um, I, I think, um, and, and the decline in the M2 money supply continuing, I think, is going to have uh, a depressing effect on the second half economy. Clearly, the Fed indicated so in its March SEP uh, projections. So, Professor, what, based on what you see, are you still saying pause is the, the most likely outcome at the next meeting? The market started getting closer uh, to 50-50, maybe pricing in the 25 hike. Yeah, I, 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 I do hear you. They, they fire release of banking is over. And the question is, will we get enough statistics post-SVB to actually measure that in the in the next six months? Um, uh my feeling is is that uh, I, I would go with a pause, but it is uh, early. I think we still have six weeks <laughs> to go. Uh, CPI data, uh, employment data, um, and 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 a lot more. Plus the anecdotal data from people and and borrowers, uh, um, as well as 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 lenders in terms of what kind of credit is being extended. Well, very good, Professor. Thanks for kicking us off to start the show here. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week. I'm going to turn our conversation uh, to David Zervos, uh, who's chief market strategist at Jefferies. And David, you've been publishing a lot about the current dynamics in the Fed um, and and how today's environment might be different than some of the other environments. Uh, started, I, I think I first saw people really referencing some of your interesting work in February when you sort of came back from a trip and had this big view on the Fed's role of taking some of the pain in, in this cycle. Um, you do, do you want to give our listeners a little bit of view of of how you think what the Fed's been doing now might be cushioning the blow from some of the past cycles of, uh, of, of tightening that the Fed had un- undertaken? Sure. I, I think the big, uh, the big difference in, in this cycle, and it's always dangerous to say this time is different, but there are some significant differences, is we're, we're coming into a tightening or engaging in a tightening uh, with very large balance sheets at not just the Fed, but at the ECB, the Bank of Japan, and virtually every other developed market central bank. And they decided that um, after going to these unconventional monetary policies and using their balance sheets when they got to the zero bound on rates, uh, that instead of contracting their balance sheets as a way of tightening first, they were going to use rate rises to tighten and kind of let the balance sheets just slowly work off. And um, in an environment of slow and modest rate hikes, that's probably not a bad idea. In a, in a world where rate hikes happen quickly and inflation risks turn quickly, um, a few things happen. One is you kind of generate a lot of losses on your balance sheet pretty quickly. And in fact, the Fed right now is paying out more interest on reserves and interest on reverse repos to the banks and the money funds and, and those with access to uh, the balance sheet than they are receiving in coupon income on the portfolio that they own, the $8.7 trillion worth of assets that they have. So the Fed is actually losing money on a on an accrual basis. Uh, not much. Uh, I think the cr- the total so far has been about $50 billion. In the grand scheme of things, they've made uh, the Treasury over a trillion dollars since QE1 first started. Um, so net-net, I wouldn't get too upset about it. But the mark-to-market, because uh, they don't mark-to-market. They're like banks. They have these hold-to-maturity accounting standards. And, and if we look at their mark-to-market, they've actually lost significant amounts of money, depending on where rates are in any one day could be anywhere from $800 billion to over, well over a trillion dollars in mark-to-market losses. And that holds true for the ECB, the Bank of Japan, and others. And the question you have to ask yourself is, in, in the old days, the central bank wouldn't really have this. They had a small balance sheet. They had treasury bills. They didn't have long-dated securities. They didn't have mark-to-market losses. So when they raised rates, uh, the losses were all in the system. So somebody gained, somebody lost. Today, the central banks have taken 
large parts of the losses in the fixed income securities market, mainly in mortgage bonds and treasury bonds in Europe and corporate bonds. And they've, well, for lack of a better word, socialized them. And, uh, and what that does is it, it, it really dampens, to some extent, the effects or traditional effects of monetary policy. And here's the simplest way to think about it. When rates go up, there are some winners and there's some losers. If you took out a mortgage at 2% and you had a $500,000 mortgage, let's say, on a house at 2% and you're paying a couple grand a month and mortgage rates go up to 6 uh, you're feeling pretty good. The guy trying to buy the house next to you with the same loan size probably has a four and a half or five thousand dollar a month mortgage payment. So you've had a net gain. The, the liability side of your balance sheet actually has a capital gain on it, and you feel wealthier. You are wealthier. Um, against that gain, that that win for someone in the economy from higher rates, there's a loss. Someone was holding that mortgage as an asset in a pool of securities, like a mortgage-backed security. That might be an insurance company, a pension fund, a bank could be SVB. They bought a lot of those and turns out they lost a lot of money on those. Uh, they bought a lot of 2% mortgages, which was their downfall. In, in the world that we live in today, we don't have that netting off inequality like we had before. So there was a winner, there was a loser. And SVB was definitely a loser and the persons who took out the mortgages were winners. Uh, and that was a bit of a zero-sum game in wealth. Today, though, a lot of the mortgages that got underwritten they don't have a corresponding loser in the financial system. They don't have a bank, a pension fund, insurance company, uh, or money fund that bought the asset. They have the central bank that bought the asset. And that's not really in the calculus of wealth effects for the private sector. So what's kind of interesting in all of this is that rate hikes have created a wealth effect, a positive wealth effect for those that have locked in low rates. But there's not a corresponding negative wealth effect in the financial sector that would normally be there. And we're not talking about a trivial amount of money. We're talking about trillions of dollars in wealth effects. And in a way, I think it helps us understand a little bit why uh, a 500 basis point rate hike cycle, which in, in most people's minds would have caused a lot of damage, messed up a lot of things, broke a lot of things, hasn't really done that much to one, either send the labor market down send the economy into a tailspin, or two, really give us a lot of financial instability. Our first bout of it has been this SVB and SBNY story. And as I said in the opening remarks, it appears that that's a very, very small storyline when it comes to financial instability that was easily squashed by just a, a simple uh, change in the Fed balance sheet uh, that, that really doesn't even seem to be needed to be used that much. So, Again, I think that's, that's a storyline that, that suggests that the Fed, the power of the Fed, the power of the ECB, the power of the Bank of Japan when it comes to inflation fighting may be a little bit dull hmm. by the vestiges of QE and these balance sheets that they're lugging around as monkeys on their bank back that are sort of socializing some of the losses that would normally go into the system and cause a tightening to be more powerful and to cause the disinflationary effects from that tightening to be more pronounced. So it, it just forces their hands to be a little bit more aggressive for a little bit longer. What, what, so one of the, the terms where my team's using a little bit is sort of bank walk versus bank run and sort of the bank walk being that now you could get 5% in treasuries, you know, floating rate treasuries, one week duration, T-bills, very high yield. Money markets have obviously seen a surge in the last three weeks, 300 billion, although this week was only 60 billion versus 100 billion in the final previous two weeks. But that 5% is still there because of, you know, the Fed policy, the, the rate hikes. And, you know, is this not for fears of safety at all from your bank, but hey, I could get 5% without taking any risk. I mean, it's, it's rare that you have the risk-free treasury, quote unquote risk-free, if we don't default on our debt ceiling, um, the, the risk-free treasury versus the bank deposits, it's a higher yielding security. I mean, just, you know, you don't have your checks, you could write off the treasury. But what do you think? Is 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 there going to be continued walking towards those five percenters? You know, I, I think there there could be. There could also be uh, a recognition of banks that they just need to pay up a little bit more for funding. I think SVB in the end, in the weeks before this um, this run, was paying four and a half percent on deposits above four million. So 
for large time deposits where people would have an incentive to make the move you're exactly saying, money, funds, and treasuries, you know, they were still below the treasury yield, which I think three-month bills were at about 490 before that. But again, as you point out, you know, there's, there's some transactions costs to kind of going between treasuries and moving them back to your, to your current account, especially if you're running a payroll or you've got constant flows in and out of your bank because you've got, you know, you're paying business costs, rental costs, employee costs, and the like, and you're running a big commercial bank account. Now, if you're just talking about savings, you're saying, well, why would I put it in there? Yeah, savings-wise, you go do something else with it. Um, and I think that's probably uh, going to continue and has continued. I would say as well, I wouldn't get too caught up in the idea that we've got um, we've got major issues from a consolidation in banking or a reduction, a general, I like your term, bank walk, uh, a general uh, movement away from traditional commercial banking and into more uh, more uh, sophisticated ways of managing money than just simply having a savings account or, or a couple of checking deposits. You know, we've gone through a massive period of consolidation in our banking industry over the last three and a half decades. We've gone from over 14,500 banks in the U.S. in the mid-80s to 4,200 banks today. I don't think anybody could argue that that 70% reduction has somehow been a drag on growth or it's been terrible for the U.S. Um, it's just a natural process of being an overbanked and overregulated and having an overregulated banking system. Uh, and a lot of the deregulation helped in bringing consolidation and I think um, more productivity to that sector. And we still are a heavily overbanked society. You look at Canada, they have 34 commercial banks. You look at Australia, they have 95 commercial banks. You look at Japan, they have 195 banks. We have 4,200 banks. Not exactly sure why we need those. And not exactly sure why if we lose two of them or we lose 20 of them, it's really that big a deal. I don't think so. And maybe that's what we're sort of all kind of coming to grips with after the last three weeks of thinking that um, some bank mistakes, which require uh, failure, and uh, I think we should applaud bad business models being failed and capitalism working, uh, that, that that is not really a change in the availability of capital. Now, maybe it changes a little bit of the pricing as we, as we move, as, as they were mispricing some of their loans to people in exchange for uh, off-market deposits, and we'll find out if that was a, a sort of issue underlying all this, sort of perks for deposits, and maybe there was. But by and large, I don't think that's the storyline for funding in the U.S., and there are 4,000-plus institutions lining up, ready to bank anybody that has does not have a banking uh, relationship any longer because of SVB or SBNY, or if someone's trying to leave First Republic or another bank that they feel also has a flawed business model. It's interesting. I was going to one of these banks um, that, that's been in, in the news a little bit, and the first page of their investor relations deck from a March presentation was, you know, half of our 70 billion deposits are in uninter- you know, uninterest-bearing deposits. that We have the lowest cost of deposits in the industry at like 20 basis points because we have all these operators who have below 250000 so they're not caring about the FDIC insurance, and we just don't pay them anything. It's like, because our operators don't care, we can afford to pay them nothing, which is, it feels silly, right? Like, you know, it feels like, hey, they could be earning really? f- 5%. You know, there just needs to be much more innovation to for these businesses to get the true, you know, you need to be able to spend off of treasuries. I mean, that seems like a, a huge market opportunity. Yeah, and one could, could think about financial innovations that are, you know, a bank that comes along and just says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to sweep you into treasuries. Or, or some some form of money market every every night, and you know I'll pay you you know three percent or three and a half percent and just take a hundred basis points from you, um, you know, and it's all uninsured deposits. It seems that you know that they have this thing in the banking world called deposit beta, which is as rates go up, how sticky are your deposits? And lots of guys like to talk about their low betas. I think one thing we learned is that people don't really have those low betas, um, and in this day and age. Uh, as rates have gone up very quickly, and as people finally realize that rates are off zero, because we basically spent the last 15 years at it around zero. So there's a lot of kids that have never even knew banks paid interest rates, paid an interest rate on their deposits. So I, I think we're going to find that uh, bank cost of funding goes up, and yes. you know the profitability story there is is just 
not nearly as robust as maybe some of these flashy PowerPoint presentations have shown, and that consolidation in the industry keeps going and that people that do dumb things go out of business, like buy lots of 2% mortgages when rates are zero and don't hedge them when rates go to 5%. Those guys should be out of business, and they are, and that's a good thing. And as you, as you see the global dynamics with Credit Suisse, is there anyone else in Europe you, you know, there, there's the the next in line team to be Deutsche Bank. People were questioning Deutsche Bank and there was some issues there. But any, do you, do you, do you have any worries about the European banks compared to U.S. banks? I tell you what I come away with, with, with Credit Suisse. I mean, this is, you know, one of the, we call them the global systemically important banking institutions, uh, uh, GSIBs, as they're called, and I believe there's something like 20 of these, and they're very highly regulated, not just by their own domestic regulator in the U.S., like the Fed, but Basel and the BIS, and, and there's lots of international scrutiny because these holding companies go across borders. And, you know, think about this. We just resolved our first ever GSIB without a peep. And in fact, the Swiss National Bank I guess it was last week. Yeah, it was last week. Uh, raised rates by 50 basis points. People forgot. The Swiss National Bank was actually raising rates just as they converged the two largest financial institutions and wiped out $16 billion of tier one capital in the debt markets, AT1 capital. And they were raising rates. I mean, they've, they've got a regulatory architecture in place that really looks rather robust in dealing with business models that have failed. And the one thing I think we can all agree with is that the, the business model that, that Credit Suisse was trying to put forward was a failure. They couldn't raise equity. Their only guys that were coming in, the last one, the Saudis said, you know, we've had enough. It's time to put them to bed. We put them to bed. We did it without a hitch. And I, I think the market should look at that in a very positive light, that our regulators actually have built up some pretty powerful tools in the post-08 period. And yes, Someone at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco probably needs to be held culpable for not noticing what the largest bank in their district was doing with mortgage bonds. Uh, and there still are holes in the regulatory architecture, uh, and there always will be. But we kind of came out of that one, not you know with a couple of scars as regulators, but not not anything like 2008 or even 1998 or other periods of time when we had large financial instability stresses. So I look at Credit Suisse in a very positive way uh, in terms of what happened. Uh, as for others and what happens in the, in the European banking world, I think we're kind of doing the same thing the U.S. is doing, consolidating our commercial banking system. We're going to have a couple of national champions. I think for national security reasons, you could argue that you need a couple of uh, big, too big to fail utility-like banks that are your monetary highways in your country. And and in the US, that may be our big four. In Switzerland, that may be just UBS. In Germany, that may be just Deutsche Bank or Deutsche Bank plus one other. Since they're a little bit bigger, they could have two or three. And those national champions are there. They're, they're kind of, uh, you know, important, systemically important. And they're also, uh, I think, from a, from a national security perspective, having your own banking system probably makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure you want to outsource that to the Chinese or, 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 or to, to another, to the U.S. even. I don't know that that makes a lot of sense uh, for any, any individual country. So I think we'll see that trend continue and we'll have a couple of big guys. And then depending on you know, how the regulatory architecture lands, we'll have investment banks that are separated out from that. We'll have some small regional banks that maybe have a role to play. Uh, that aren't as regulated uh, and, and don't act as utility-like as others and, and can take some some additional risks that may be beneficial for, for economic growth. But I think that's the trend. So, tying we, ta we talked a lot about the banks and uh, the stability mechanisms that we've we've had here. And, and so, it, 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 in terms of the inflation fight, where do you see the Fed in the inflation fight? Do you have a view on, we, we, we talked about, hey, there's six more weeks before the next meeting. Uh, do, do you think, from your sense, is inflation still a risk Powell needs to be attacking uh, and he could be independent of these bank stability concerns? 
to, to answer the last part of your question, I think we've seen it. We, we've seen all these central banks that had financial instability risks get in the way of their inflation fight, use the balance sheet to continue to, to, to fight the financial stability fight, but not can let that get in the way of the inflation battle. The Bank of England did that when the LDI crisis hit last autumn. They were raising rates after they came in and bought the long end of the gilt market and stabilized what was happening in their pension funds. We saw with the ECB, they created the anti-fragmentation tool even before they started raising rates because they knew everybody would try to sell Italian government bonds. Uh, and, and no one sold Italian government bonds. They created a facility to stop that. So they've, they've stopped the financial instability and they've kept raising rates to deal with the inflation issues. So the question that I think is more interesting, because I think that dichotomy is built, done, and we just saw it work in the U.S. too. So I don't have any, we're not going back to the 98 world where we cut rates because of long-term capital or a financial instability event. We're going to cut rates and we're going to slow the rate hikes down because the dual mandate or the mandate of the central bank is being met and it's the right time to do it because of the outlook for inflation and growth. We're not going to do it because we have to do it to save the financial system. I think we have the tools on the balance sheet to do that and separate that out. And that's a good thing. That means we're not going to create unnecessary bubbles like we did in the late 90s, cutting rates for financial stability reasons. And we didn't really need to do that for the economy. So are we done on inflation? Um, well, today we got the core PC. I think it's in the mid fours, four and a half. Uh, that's 250 base points above target after spending, I think now almost two years, uh, two and bit years over target. Uh, we have a headline CPI at six. We've just come off of two years of back-to-back 7% inflation. And we have a central bank, the Fed, that looks at average inflation now, not just looking ahead at inflation. They're looking at, you know, have we had 2% on average for a two-year period, five-year period, seven-year period? I think if they stay true to form, they really have an inflation battle that's still with them, and they're going to be very cautious. I think the one thing Jay Powell does not want to do is make the mistake of the 70s, which is declaring victory on inflation too early, letting rates either stabilize at too low a level or cut rates too early, and then walk out of his office on January of 2026 with many people arguing that he was the reincarnation of Arthur Burns or possibly Bill Martin back in the 60s and 70s. I think Jay wants to go out as the reincarnation of Paul Volcker. I've been writing that to our clients since the beginning of this rate hike cycle. And I think in that sense, he's just going to be a lot more stubborn when it comes to recognizing a successful win over inflation. And a successful win over inflation is not just getting it down to two and holding it there for a couple months. It may be a little longer than that. And it may even be a little below two before everybody's happy. So I think we have work to do. It doesn't mean we have to take rates up and bash the economy to get to two. We could glide into two, but I, I don't see rationale for them turning around and say cutting rates because inflation gets down to 3% a little bit quicker than they thought. I think they're going to be quite cautious. David, I think, uh, as, as you're just saying, Powell might be the Volcker reincarnated, um, you know, perhaps. Uh, how do you think that translates into views on equities, equities versus bonds? So, you know, 60-40 was in a lot of pain last year, with stocks and bonds declining together. What do you see as unique nuances of, of today's stock and bond markets here? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating time uh, to think about where to be in the uh, in the capital markets, where you get the best risk reward. And, and I think the, the most important thing for me is when I advocate an equity position for clients, and, and I've been a big fan of risk parity for many years, uh, and last year we turned away from it, largely because of the inflation. When there's high inflation, the Fed or any central bank can't act as the same backstop. So that, that bond cushion that you get from either a 60-40 portfolio or a risk parity style portfolio, which is a kind of levered 60-40 portfolio, a more levered fixed income piece. The bond market just can't act as your insurance policy uh, for modest pullbacks in the equity market. For catastrophes, it can, if you know the equity market's gonna fall 50, 60-70%. Yeah, of course, we can, we can see the bond market coming to our rescue. But that hasn't been the story for the last decade plus. It's been that because inflation's been low, the Fed could afford to kind of come in and, and be your backstop, even in modest pullbacks in the equity market of 10, 15, 20, 
percent. And so uh, last year was one of those periods where a 20 percent pullback in the equity market didn't give you, you know, there was no insurance from the fixed income side. In fact, um, the fixed income side was the problem. And uh, it was a resetting of the fixed income side that had been somewhat, for lack of a better word, manipulated uh, by the central banks. And it needed to reset and reprice, which it did. And, and one of the most interesting things about last year was that when you look at the, the what we call the, the Barclays Ag, the old Lehman Ag, the sort of total fixed income market, the, 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 the treasuries, agencies, uh, corporates, high yield, municipals, the whole thing. This is a gigantic market. It's three times the size of the equity market, and it's generally about a third as volatile as the equity market. Bonds are not as volatile as equities. And that ag moved 20%. It was a, it was a number that it really we had never seen in our careers. I think going back in history, you can point to some periods 100 years ago where it, or more where, where bonds had that kind of uh, sell-off in aggregate. But typically, you, know, you don't get that kind of that move in bonds. And if you kind of put that in a risk-adjusted basis, that's kind of the equivalent of the equity market on a volatility-adjusted basis selling off 60%, not 20%. So we had a huge change in the valuations uh, for bonds, and in particular, corporate credit uh, and structured credit. And we saw movements toward yields in the 9s and the 10s and the 11s. These are very high yields compared to where we've been in the past for, say, single B, double B loans, structured, and, and, and bonds. And for me, that was really a, a, an interesting uh, way to think about starting the year because you have an equity market that definitely got cheaper, but you had a Fed that was still going to have to stay on top of you and fight this inflation. And it was very hard for me to tell a story uh, to our clients that there was a, a real case for uh, say a 20% up move in the equity market, which is what I would need to kind of be in equities because I need to see at least a pretty good probability of getting a high return. Otherwise, I'm taking way too much risk. I'm in the first loss piece of the capital structure of every company in America. So why would I want to be in that? first loss piece, the riskiest piece, when, you know, the Fed is probably going to have to keep this fight going. And in fact, the more that the market goes up, the more the Fed's going to feel emboldened to try to get to an, its target of 2% inflation faster. So, you know, as we're pushing up the 42 or 4,300 in the S&P, Jay's going to sound a little meaner, just like he did at Jackson Hole last year, and he knocked the market right back down. So to me, there wasn't an easy equity trade here, again, uh, same as last year. The upside to me was really capped by a Fed that was not going to be your friend. It wasn't backstopping you. And it was probably going to try to move against you as a long to get its target uh, of inflation back in order faster because that strength in the economy would give it the ability to do so without causing too much damage. So that sent me back to thinking about, well, what looks cheap, what looks different. And to me, what, what really looks different than where it was a year ago uh, or, or 15 months ago really is is – the, the high-yield bond markets. You could put together a very nice structure of loans, corporate credit, bonds, uh, and, and, and structured credit in a single B to double B region, and you can find yourself pretty quickly at a 10% yield. You are in the senior secured part of the capital structure, which means all the equity guys have to lose before you get hit. So you are, you are senior secured. You are in the safer part of the capital structure, and you're getting, you know, 10%, which is not that far away from equity-like returns. So that's kind of where we're pushing our, our folks this year. I was very happy, honestly, in this latest period to watch how the high-yield bond market uh, traded, even as credit became a focus for people. I mean, I was happy to see that S&P traded quite well as, as well. But it was nice to see both the S&P and HYG, J&K, and the like and some of the loan funds that I look at um, trade really quite well, even as the banking system was going through this turmoil. It was a, it was very modest pullbacks, especially when looked at against what was happening in something like the two-year treasury yield or volatility on the short end of the yield curve, which basically looked like it was doing something like the fall of 2008 uh, in terms of vol and movement. So um, I was I was kind of happy with that. I'm still happy with that. I like the way it's trading right now. I think HYG and J&K are having another good day today. Uh, we're up, you know, total return wise, uh, right around where the equity market's up. I think about four four and change percent for the year. 
with one look at coupon and capital gain, uh, maybe the equities are up a little bit more. But again, I'm I'm looking at that on a risk adjusted basis and saying that's that's yeah. kind of where I want to or where I want clients to be. I, I've looked at the, that exact story, David, and and historically, I, I think high those sort of high yield bond indexes have been about half the volatility of stocks over let's call it ten years, maybe, uh, and and maybe even longer. And 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 you know, it's interesting you say ten is that may be better than your forward looking equity returns if you don't have any losses in the high yield bonds. Um, you know, if you look at where the S and P's pricing, maybe it's a seven to eight real return over the next seven years from some of the valuations today and some of our work. Um, do you think you'll have losses? Interesting, and if there is a a worsening of the banking dynamic, even the high yield bond indexes don't have that many of the banks. Uh, you know, some of the banks become in the investment grade section, actually, in in many of the cases. For sure, for sure. No, I, I you know they have a lot of the stuff that you kind of you sort of want some industrials. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of sectors that look really interesting, and they they don't have as much tech either, which is you know. Maybe good, maybe bad, but it certainly keeps some of the volatility, um, you know, at bay. So, look, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I want to get too deep in the sector side because I am a macro guy, and there, you know, we at Jeffries have you know hundreds and hundreds of analysts that are really deep in the weeds and sectors, and I'd encourage you know our clients to, to talk to them individually. But on a macro basis, a kind of broad portfolio across all sectors. Thinking about nine, ten, eleven percent in a in a senior secured position, where if the company really does go into a, a a tailspin, the equity has to get wiped out before you lose. So the equity goes to zero, and then you might you know have a default or or a restructuring. So I think it's it's a pretty powerful story in high yield right now, and uh, I would encourage a lot of folks to to continue to look at it. While we're talking ten. You know, ten percent. I look at some of the Japanese markets as a place where you get ten percent earnings yields. Uh, you know, not in the S P five hundred, but in, in in parts of the Japanese segment, the way we look at it, you get nine p nine to ten PEs, ten to eleven percent earnings yields. What do you think about? We talked a lot about the Fed. We talked a little bit about ECB, but what do you think about Japan? What their central bank is doing? Um, are they going to be able to exit their yield curve control in in a clean fashion? What do you, What do you think about Japan today? You know, I think um, I think Japan has started. They widened the band. Um, they're probably quite happy that uh, the most recent inflation data is, you know, heading back in the direction that they want. They've got the low threes now in headlining core. Um, they've had twenty five to thirty years now of trying to generate inflation and not getting it. So. In some uh, way, I think they are quite happy with all this. They just don't want to see big, quick dislocations in the JGB market. The banks have a lot of JGBs. They don't need to have people questioning solvency and SVB-like issues uh, on mark-to-market losses because of the JGBs or the treasuries that the financial system owns. So I think they want a nice, steady, slow movement. They could raise the band once every quarter to, to six months. Let the market find an equilibrium where it seems like there's buyers of 10-year JGBs up at the 1% region. Maybe it's a 1.5%. Let's see. You know, Now that global yields have come back down a little bit and the treasuries are more at 35 on the long end rather than 4 4 and a quarter, it probably takes some pressure off them. But again, I think this is more about managing sort of uh, – mark-to-market risks in the financial system and sort of, you know, financial stability. So I think they just want to keep it uh, slow and steady, and I think they will. And we're a long way off from rate rises. We're, we're really going to, I think, focus on this unwinding of yield curve control. Mr. Ueda, who is, um, you know, an old-school uh, BOJ guy, is probably not a, uh, by all accounts, not a huge fan of the yield curve control idea to begin with. He was a big QE guy, much of a Bernanke-type disciple academic. And I think he would probably like to go back to balance sheet tools and, and rates. And and he's also a guy who, who I think recognizes that the big mistake in Japan has been keeping real rates too high for too long. Uh, and that's what led them into this disinflationary lost decade or decade. 
and, and I think he's going to be, he's not going to be uh, a sort of a chicken little type on inflation. He's going to sort of be, I think, somewhat happy that they've been able to get 3% inflation. I think we're all kind of happy that Japan could get 3 or 4% inflation. I remember the old days when we used to talk about how we were all turning into Japan and we were never going to get inflation again and we would go into these, you know, conversations about the 1930s. And uh, thankfully, we're not having those anymore. You know, they talking about trades and, and yield spreads, you know, Japan's got one of these ultimate carry trades. You got about 5% because their rates are still so low and you got the, you know, the, the, our treasury is so much higher. There's a lot uh, of, of carry trades on that, but that that was sort of influencing the dollar in in many ways. Dollar yen was one of the most interesting currencies. It, currencies were like like sort of dull, watching paint dry for a while, where vol was so low. But now, last year, vol spiked a bit. What do you think about the dollar? Is where do you see dollar yen? Where do you see the dollar generally? You know, I I, I think we are um, we are really coming toward that that end game of the tightening in the U.S. So the dollar strength was all last year. That was the trade, the EM weakness. Even I think that caught the commodity guys off. There were a lot of people calling for big moves in oil, and then oil's back down at, you know, 70 bucks, kind of, you know, making a lot of commodity guys upset. I think we've had the big move in the dollar. We've had the big move lower in commodities. We've had the big weakening story in EM. That was the move from zero to 5% in short-term interest rates in the United States. The next phase of this is that the Fed's probably got to keep it here for a little bit longer, precisely for the reasons that we were talking about earlier in this uh, radio show. So I don't see the dollar coming down a lot, but I don't see another leg up in the dollar. I think we're very much in that stability period for the dollar. Now, at the margin, most people are going to think that the next move in the dollar is down because the Fed's done a lot and usually something breaks and maybe SBB was the break. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe that was a false flag, which it looks like it might be. And then we're going to go to the next worry. And you and I are going to do a, a show in six months. And the only thing we're going to talk about is commercial real estate. And we're going to draw parallels to what happened in the savings and loan crisis or what happened in 08. And we're going to look at Bornado stock, which is you know down at 08 levels, and talk about why everything with with them is a mess, or SL Green, or one of these other REITs. I, look, I think my base case is dollar stable, commodities quite stable, but there's going to be a bias to weakness in the dollar and a bias toward spikes in commodities as people try to assess when the Fed is done. And when the Fed can kind of take its foot off the brake. But, you know, those are going to come and they're going to go. And they're going to be a lot of false. I think there's going to be more false starts than real major moves to the downside. Uh, and maybe, just maybe, we kind of walk out of this like we all were talking about a few months ago and say, soft landing. We kind of lift the fight another day and, and we, don't, we, we can kind of maybe get rates a couple of years from now back down. To somewhat normal levels, like by historical standards, let's say you know the Fed funds rate uh, maybe three percent to three and a half percent, as this inflation story over the next couple years really winds itself out. But it'll be a slow move, and um, I don't think it's a crash in the dollar. But it's at the margin. I think there's a support story in EM, and there's a support story in in commodities that kind of comes out of it. The heavy lifting and the real hit has already come. In, in teasing out a conversation we're going to have next week on Behind the Marks, we'll be talking with uh, an author, Jonathan Ward, about his book, The Decisive Decade uh, and sort of conflict with China. China has been a big part of the commodity story, big part of geopolitical story. Uh, as you think about China's reopening and, and just the overall geopolitical mix, opening question, just how do you think of China today, opportunities, risks for their, uh, you know, their equity markets and, and, and other global markets? You know, I, look, I, I always have the same kind of answer. Um, you know, I've never been a fan of investment in China. Um, I've never thought that a country that espoused Marxian or Leninist principles was a place where I wanted to take my capital. Uh, I'd happily trade with them. 
I don't have any problem. And I think global trade with China will continue to be brisk and strong and, and we will have gains from trade. I'm just not sure we have the same investment principles, the same way of treating capital. Uh, and in that sense, I think the slow, steady movement is going to be away from investing in places that have treatment of capital holders that really goes against traditional Western democratic values uh, and, and moving toward places that are more accepting of traditional Western democratic values. And that's why I think you're going to end up seeing significant reinvestment decisions take place in the region away from China and into whether it's India or the Middle East or other Southeast Asian uh, jurisdictions. I, I think it's going to be very hard for boards of Western companies to say, yeah, let's go invest, you know, $250 million in a bunch of parking lots in Guangdong. I just, I don't, I don't know that you're ever going to really be in control of those parking lots uh, or feel in control of those. Whereas I think you can go into Saudi Arabia or you could go into India or you could go into certainly into Europe or the U.S. or Canada or Australia. You could put your money to work and you could build a business and you could feel comfortable owning that business and being part of their, their investment community as a foreign direct investor. And I think that's going to be uh, a big problem for China as we move forward growth wise. I mean, this teasing out this conversation we're going to have with Jonathan, uh, Jonathan, again, Jonathan Ward, The Decisive Decade Ahead, new book coming out. Uh, you know, there's very few things that unite our politicians in Washington, but the take against China seems to be the one unifying principle for Democrats, Republicans coming together. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how we navigate all these geopolitical dynamics. And Jonathan, it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, David, any 30 seconds, closing thoughts? We've covered a tour de force around the world. Any, any closing thoughts for people as they navigate the markets ahead? No, I just kind of reiterate the same thought. Think about being in risk assets, but maybe in a place where you're, you've got a few people ahead of you that can take some losses because the road will be bumpy. The Fed's got an inflation fight on its hands. We've been back to back years with 7% inflation. We're still at six on the CPI. They're not done yet. And uh, the words that Jay Powell are going to live by are the Paul Volcker words from his book, keeping at it. He's going to keep at it. He's not going to declare victory early. And in that sense, I think there's a lot of headwind to large making large returns in equities. I don't think equities have tons of downside either. But I just don't think you're getting paid to be in the riskiest part of the capital structure. You're getting paid handsomely to be in the less risky parts of the capital structure of U.S. corporates. That's awesome. I'll, I'll leave it at that. David, it's been a great conversation with David Zervos, Chief Strategist at Jefferies. Thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, on the soundboard. Producer, Matt Datz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132, and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.